Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn uh, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, and so uh, today we're, we're turning back a few chapters, Ephesians chapter 1, and learning here from Paul what our core fundamental identity is as, as Christians. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. May he write this word upon our hearts again this morning. Well, if you pull out your bulletin again and follow along with me as we confess from our Heidelberg Catechism where our only comfort in life and in death is truly found. So I'll read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. Question one of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death. To my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head in the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Of course, this, this question and answer uh, brings to mind the, the theme of comfort. And so what are some things in, in life, in your life, that, that give you comfort? They don't have to be profound things, but what things give you comfort? You can respond to this question. Family. 
stability. Yes. Donuts. Donuts. <laughs> spouse. Family. Yeah, there are many comforts. Many comforts that we have in this life and uh, many common comforts, things that you, you've stated. Many blessings that the Lord has poured down upon us. And these are things that we should rightly enjoy. However, these common or circumstantial uh, comforts are things that come and go and things that aren't necessarily guaranteed or promised to us in this life. And you'll notice that in, in our, our, our question, the catechism includes this word only. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Because the question that comes to mind is, well, what happens when these common comforts are stripped away? When life seems turbulent, when life actually seems comfortless? Where do we find comfort in those moments? And thus the catechism in asking this question in this way is not really pointing to the circumstantial common comforts. It's pointing to ultimate comfort. Comfort that transcends our circumstances. What is your only comfort? What is your ultimate comfort, both in life and in death? I mentioned last week that this, this document was written in the 16th century in 1563. And in the 16th century, the people of God were, were very much in need of comfort. Not only was life very difficult in the 16th century, uh, much more difficult than, than we have it today. Life expectancy was much shorter. But in that context, the people of God had, had, lived, had, had been in a, in, a, in a context where this ultimate comfort had been obscured for over a thousand years. As one Reformation scholar has noted that, you know, in the Middle Ages, people knew that there was one great redemptive act of God that they were looking forward to. That Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead. We confess this in the Apostles' Creed. But because their view of salvation was that Christ did part of the work, but that we are to participate with that grace and do our part, one never had assurance of salvation. In fact, assurance of salvation was viewed as presumptuous for the ordinary Christian. And so when the people of God look forward to that great act of redemption, great act of, 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 of God in the second coming, it struck them with fear. Because Christ was not only Christ was going to come for salvation, but also for judgment. And no one knew if they would pass through that judgment. In fact, most cathedrals in, in across Europe on the archway that people would walk through on the way into church would have a scene depicted of Christ judging the living and the dead. And it struck fear in people. And so this question and answer betrays its Protestant identity. One thing the Reformation recovered is that the ordinary Christian, simply by believing upon Jesus, can have the assurance of salvation and the comfort of that assurance. That's something the ordinary Christian uh, was not taught to have throughout the Middle Ages. And thus, in the context of the 16th century, this document would have been an explicitly Protestant document. We can have comfort and be assured of that comfort, whether in life or in death. And sadly and somewhat ironically, there are many Protestants even today that, that have sort of turned their back on this core Protestant identity of what it means to 
to be a reformational Protestant. And so this topic, this topic of comfort is, is relevant not only because we still live in a fallen world, life is still hard, but also because every age um, we need to recover and, and put forward this ultimate comfort that we have uh, through Christ. So what is, what is our only comfort in life and in death? I'd like us to consider for a few moments how Paul answers these questions from Ephesians chapter 1. So this, this, this section in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, what is the most repeated phrase or concept or idea that Paul, that Paul repeats for us? In Christ. Sometimes he'll just say, in him. In Christ or in him. It's, it's repeated at least eight times throughout this short passage. In Christ, in him. All these things that have, that have happened that we have in him. And this is Paul's shorthand to refer to union with Christ. The spirit in our regeneration works this union with Christ. We are united to the human nature of Christ. And Paul, in shorthand, refers to that union with Christ wrought by the Holy Spirit as just, we are in him. We are in Christ. We are united to Christ by the Spirit. Ephesians 2 will go on to say how part of this union is we've been raised with Christ. We are in the heavenly places. That's what it means to be in Christ. Well, uh, verse 3 then is, is sort of a thesis statement for this passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you can think of it this way. We belong to Jesus. We are in Christ. We are united to him by the Spirit. And by virtue of this relationship, we are the inheritors of every spiritual blessing. So we're in Christ. And because we have that relationship with Christ, we then are the recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You can think of it in one way, like a home. A home is a, is a great blessing. Shelter, it's, it's a necessity. But... By virtue of having a home, many other blessings become possible for you. You can raise a family. You can enjoy community and fellowship and recreation, etc., etc. Well, a similar way, belonging to Jesus is this blessing that opens up many other blessings. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the rest of this passage then enumerates some of these blessings that we have in Christ, in him. And so what are these blessings? What are some blessings that we have that Paul states in this passage by virtue of this relationship with Jesus. Yes, holy and blameless. Adopted. Verse 5. Redemption. Forgiveness. There we see we're predestined, right, in verse 4 and 5. We've been chosen, predestined to be holy and blameless, to be adopted into the family of God. Verses 8 through 10, we have this statement of God's sovereignty. Like God's great cosmic plan in human history is to unite all things in heaven and on earth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, we have this, this promise that we have an inheritance that we are looking forward to. And this inheritance has been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. So we're the recipients of, of the Spirit, and the Spirit is the guarantee that we will enter into the fullness of that new creation. 
Many, many blessings that Paul lays out before us here. And these are all things that are true no matter what we're going through in our life. That's really what Paul's saying. By virtue of belonging to Jesus, all of these things are yours and they're true whether life is difficult or, or, or life is going really well. And thus, we can take comfort in these things no matter what our circumstances are. So now I'd like to turn to the question answer one of the Heidelberg and see how what we confess in question answer one of the Heidelberg is really exactly what Paul lays out in Ephesians chapter one. So you'll see that the first phrase in, in, answer, in, in question answer one says that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. Now what in Ephesians one does this correspond to? Yeah. Yeah, those are all important and related ideas. I think most centrally, though, this relates to that, the idea of being in Christ, right? We are in Christ. We are in him. Another way to say that is we belong to Jesus. Body and soul, life and in death, we're not our own. Our fundamental identity is that we are in Christ, Another, another statement by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 uh, says this almost verbatim, that we are not our own, but we belong to Jesus, and so we are to glorify God with our bodies. This means that our fundamental identity is not our, our sin, not our vices, or even our virtues and our, our accomplishments. Our fundamental identity, as we even heard in, in Luke chapter 14, is our union with Christ. That's what we celebrate when we gather together on, on the Lord's Day. This is really encouraging, comforting news that this is who we are and this cannot be taken away. Our most important thing about ourselves is irrevocable. We belong to Jesus' body and soul, life and in death. Well, then the catechism goes on the next phrase to say, again, so th this is, is the, the central idea to the answer and everything else is enumerating what it, what it means to belong to Jesus. In a similar way in Ephesians 1, the central idea is that we belong to, uh, we are in Christ, and then the rest of the passage is enumerating the blessings that we have by virtue of that relationship. And therefore, the catechism answer goes on to say, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. Now, where do we see this concept in, in Ephesians 1? Exactly. In him we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. That Christ has satisfied the wrath of God for all of our sins. Not just our past sins, not just our present sins, but even our future sins. All of those sins were fully satisfied for on the cross. Well, this answer goes on and says, and it has, that Christ has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. Now, what idea in, in Ephesians 1 does this correspond to? Some translations of the, the catechism says, and has redeemed me from the tyranny of the devil. It might help a little bit. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Redemption through his blood. And this idea of redemption is uh, 
comes from the domain of commerce. So in the first century, it would have been used to refer to a slave who's under one household and then has been redeemed out of that household into another household. And so here, the catechism is saying that we have been delivered or set free or redeemed from the tyranny of the devil, by extension, the law, our own flesh, um, sin itself, and we belong to another. We belong to Jesus. Ephesians 2 will, says that those who are dead in their sins and trespasses were following the prince of the power of the air, the evil one. But, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we've been made alive with Christ. We have a new relationship. We've been delivered from the tyranny of the devil. When the catechism goes on and says, He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. So, a bit more tricky, but what does this, is there anything in Ephesians 1 that corresponds with this, uh, this great promise that we have that we confess? Verse 9? Yeah. Exactly, that, that extended section of verses 8 through 10 where we see this God's cosmic goal for, for, um, for this, this creation as, as we read that this plan which has been set forth in Christ um, is a plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth, which is a statement of God's sovereignty. And if we connect that to then verse 5 that we're adopted, we know that God then is not only all-powerful, and can do all things, but he desires to do all things for our good. So this is a statement of God's sovereign power and care for his children. We've been adopted, and God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. And if we're in Christ, then that's good news for us. We're on the winning team at the end of the day. And even in verse 22 at the end of Ephesians 1 that we didn't read, it speaks about the kingship of Christ and that God has made Christ head over all things and you could render it for the sake of the church, meaning Christ rules, God in Christ rules all things with a special eye towards his church, which is what we confess. Not a hair can fall from our head apart from the will of our Father and God's will is for our good. Well, we continue to confess then in and question and answer one, that in fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And here, this one uh, touches upon the doctrine of perseverance. If it was possible to fall away from grace, to apostatize, then this promise would not be true. Because apostasy, true apostasy, where you were once regenerated, and then you fall away from grace, that would be the one instance where all things do not work out for your salvation. And so we see here this great promise that we will be preserved in the faith. All things will work out for our salvation, our conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this taught in verse 13. The Spirit. How does Paul describe the Spirit? It's the seal, the down payment, the guarantor of our inheritance. Meaning, right now we haven't fully entered into our inheritance. But because we have the Spirit, we know we will one day be there in full. The Spirit is the guarantee. And then lastly, uh, this question and answer says, Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready 
from now on to live for him. Of course, we see this in Ephesians 1 and verses 13 and 14, uh, where the Spirit is one of the great blessings that we have by virtue of belonging to Jesus. In fact, is, is central, central to this whole idea because it's the Spirit who creates this union, this union that we have with Christ. Now, Paul doesn't speak here about the Spirit's role of assuring, the Spirit's role of, of motivating new obedience. Can anyone think of other scriptures that speak to the Spirit's role of, of assurance in our lives? of our faith. One explicit passage, Romans 8, when we, we, we learn that the, the Spirit causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. That the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. Um, so we have that inward testimony of the Spirit assuring us of our faith. And then, yes, we have other instances that speak, um, uh, that speak to, to assurance that definitely is connected to, uh, the, to the Spirit of God. And then we also see that the Spirit is the one who motivates new obedience, the author of our sanctification. First Peter 1 begins this way. It says the, the Spirit is the Spirit who works and brings about the sanctification, this renewal of our inner man. As we even learned this morning, this redemptive healing of Christ takes place in our lives through the Spirit and the Spirit's ministry through the Word in our, in our lives. Unless you see that this question and answer one, of course we could go to many, many different passages to see the truthfulness of what we confess in question and answer one, but really we don't have to go much farther than Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, Paul is saying um, pretty much the same thing that we're confessing. Our fundamental, the fundamental thing we take comfort in is that we belong to Jesus. We're united to him. And in Christ we have these innumerable blessings. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been redeemed from the tyranny of the evil one. We have a father, we've been adopted, meaning we have a father who watches over us for our good. We have the spirit of God who guarantees uh, this, this, this inheritance, assures us, motivates us in, in our Christian lives. Any, any questions or comments on, on any of those phrases in question answer one or, or Ephesians one? Well, I'd like to conclude just by reading a, few, a couple verses from 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 4. Now, Paul here, in this passage, uses comfort on, uh, many, many times. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So notice the logic of Paul's, of Paul's argument there. He says that when we suffer, when we experience afflictions, what's happening is we are in some, some sense being stripped of the comforts of this life, these common circumstantial comforts. And in so doing, 
we experience in a more profound way this ultimate comfort we have in Christ. One of the Lord's purposes in our sufferings. Well, when that happens, we then are able to share the comfort of Christ to others who are going through afflictions, trials, and sufferings. You may have experienced this in your own life. When you are going through a, a difficult time of life, a difficult trial, and, and someone, another Christian comes alongside you, maybe a Christian who's experienced something similar to what you're going through, and they're able to empathize with you and encourage you with the truth of God's word in a, in a very meaningful and profound way. Maybe you've been able to do that to, to another Christian in your own life. Thus, Paul is, is saying that the sufferings of our life, in some sense, make us even more useful to the body of Christ. Because in our sufferings, we are given a more profound glimpse of this comfort, this only comfort we have in Christ, and thus we're able to share this comfort with more pathos and conviction to others in the body of Christ in the church who, who are struggling, who are going through various afflictions. So let's never forget, let's never forget that truly our only comfort in life and in death is found in this union that we have with Jesus, that we belong body and soul, life and in death, to our faithful Savior. Amen.